we got to fight this beast wherever we're at. And, you know, the best way to do that is to get organized. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. The ACLU and Disability Law Center filed a lawsuit against Davis County, Utah, to make the state's jail standards public. The organizations say transparency is the issue. Jail standards determine how prison officials deal with any and all scenarios. The standards include use of force, procedures followed when the inmate is male or female, and what practices the jail follows when an inmate commits suicide. The lawsuit arose from a series of record requests and appeals that have all ended in denial that the standards should be made public. The author of the standards is Gary DeLand, a resident of Southern Utah. He sold the standards to the state years ago and has since sold them to over a dozen other states also. He insists the standards were intended to be used internally for compliance within the jail system and that they should stay that way. Reuters reported that U.S. authorities are moving some 1,600 ICE detainees to federal prisons. This move represents the first large-scale use of federal prisons to house detainees. It's part of the Trump administration's hardline stance on people entering the country illegally. An ICE spokesperson said that five federal prisons will temporarily house detainees waiting for civil immigration court hearings. A prison in Victorville, California, will take in 1,000 people, including asylum seekers. Prisons in Washington State, Oregon, Arizona, and Texas will also receive detainees. ICE has used federal prisons for immigration in the past, but not at this magnitude. Under the Obama administration, many immigrants without serious criminal records were permitted to live in the U.S. while waiting for their court dates. Some were housed in immigration detention centers or local jails. In April 2018, almost 51,000 people were caught at or near the southern U.S. border. During the same month a year before, some 16,000 people were apprehended. For over nine years, according to the Human Rights Defense Center newsletter, the Florida prison system has banned the magazine Prison Legal News from reaching prisoners. A recent court ruling upheld the ban. However, the center has decided to take its case against the censorship to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Florida Department of Corrections claims that some of the magazine's advertisements pose a threat to prison security. Those ads are for stamps, pen pals, and discount phone services. No other jail or prison in the U.S. censors magazines on the basis of its ads. Ads are essential to the magazine because subscription rates themselves don't cover the cost of publishing the magazine. Ads allow for the magazine to help subsidize its editorial content and keep the subscription rates low for prisoner subscribers. Numerous law professors have filed a friend of court brief on the case's behalf, as has media organizations and retired corrections professionals. In Chicago, supporters of prisoner Red Wolf are asking for court support on Thursday, June 21st at 9.30 a.m. If you're in the Chicago area, you can show your support by going to 2650 South California, room 208, floor 7. On that Thursday, the court will decide whether to take off a year from Red Wolf's remaining three-year sentence, release him on parole, or send him back to Menard Prison. The court date should be very short, only about 30 minutes of your time. You can find more information on this at the Chicago Anarchist Black Cross Facebook page. 
Later this week, prisoners in Florida and Texas are launching a strike. It will begin on June 19th, celebrated as Juneteenth, the day the Emancipation Proclamation reached Texas in 1865. For context, on the stake of the strike, we're sharing part of a statement on the dangerously hot conditions inside Texas prisons, written by Keith Malik Washington late last month. This statement is not related to the Juneteenth strike itself. He writes, Peace and blessings, sisters and brothers. It is late May as I write this, and already the heat is reaching unbearable limits inside the Texas prisons. I personally am in the midst of my annual Ramadan fast, and the extreme heat places an extra bit of intensity on our obligatory fast. A federal judge in Houston, Texas, has ruled in favor of prisoners housed at the PAC unit located in Navasota, Texas, on the issue of toxic water. However, the question that is being asked by prisoners and their families is, what is the state of Texas going to do with the rest of the facilities which place our loved ones at risk? And a lot of folks in the media and the activist community forget that this is not just the prisoners who are suffering in this superheated environment. State employees who work as correctional officers are catching hell down here too. But unlike me, these prison guards can't speak publicly about the deadly extreme heat or they'll be sacking up groceries at the local Piggly Wiggly supermarket or working as a greeter at Walmart. I've been asked by many prison guards if I would please tell the world about the cruel and unusual working conditions that they are forced to work under. Not every prison guard down here in Texas is an abuser or a bigot. I don't particularly agree with their career choice, but at the end of the day, these are human beings, and the state of Texas has placed a gag order on them so they can't talk to the media about the real conditions inside these brick ovens that Texas passes off as modern-day rehabilitation facilities. So today, it's approximately 91 degrees Fahrenheit outside here in Lovelady, Texas. I'm currently housed on a three-row, it is 2 p.m., and I only have on my boxers, nothing else. The officer working the wing has on a long sleeve shirt buttoned all the way up, trousers, equipment belt, and a nylon protective vest with inserts. She's sweating profusely, and it isn't even hot yet, folks. The TDCJ has said they intend on doing new things this year in order to mitigate the extreme heat but I can tell you that nothing short of lowering the inside temperatures to 88 degrees Fahrenheit or below is really a waste of time, and they know that. Officers are being promised new coolers which store ice. Here at Eastham, there isn't even enough ice for prisoners. So I'm trying to figure out where all this magic ice is going to come from. Sisters and brothers, it has not just been prisoners who have died in respect to the deadly extreme heat. Prison guards have died also, and TDCJ spokesperson Jeremy Diesel is not eager to discuss the officer death toll numbers. I am currently awaiting the statistics. Sisters and brothers, I suffer from seizures. I'm a chronic seizure patient, and right at the point when the heat is coming, the UTMB medical staff have been surreptitiously attempting to discontinue my seizure medication. I'll be 50 years old in July 2018. I'm not a young puppy anymore, but TDCJ and UTMB would love to shut this old dog up. I'm asking everyone to come together on this issue. Support your incarcerated loved ones who are filing lawsuits. Support freedom fighters such as myself, and remember that prison guards are people too. Let's get the Texas legislature to allocate more funds in order to create re-entry programs so we can close these prisons and we can work jobs to pay for air conditioning in our houses and apartments. Abolish all prisons today. You can read Washington's full statement online. This week, we hear part of a panel from the recent Fight Toxic Prisons Conference, which was held last week in Pittsburgh. Salim Holbrook shares his experiences after doing decades inside, and what it was like for him to organize in prison. Coming into the system when he was young, he describes the influence of older prisoners on himself and others. Now, Holbrook is out and continues to organize. He's the co-founder of the Human Rights Coalition, along with his late mother. Holbrook sat down for an interview with us to speak more in depth about his own experiences and how the families of prisoners can get organized to make a positive impact on their loved ones on the inside. Here he is. 
So the Human Rights Coalition was founded in 2002. It was founded under, I wouldn't say unique circumstances in Pennsylvania, but I think it was exceptional that HRC is an organization founded by prisoners and our families on the outside. Um, when HRC started, it was primarily started in two prison camps, SCI Green and SCI Huntington. And historically, these two prison camps were the breaking camps. Whereas though, if you were a troublemaker, if you were someone who act out, if you were someone who took on the system, those were the two prison camps you were gonna, you were gonna land in because they were pretty much old school prisons. They kept you in the hole for years. It was, uh, you know, um, SCI Huntington resembled Shawshank Redemption. If you wanna just get an idea that the prisons, you know, contrasted so much because SCI Huntington was over 100 years old. So its prison resembled the prison in Shawshank Redemption. SCI Green, on the other hand, was a new prison. It was shiny, it looked like a spaceship on the inside. Everything was crystal clean. They kept it almost sterile, that's how clean it was. Um, however, these two camps were the camps for the troublemakers. Um, at that time, a lot of us were younger guys. We were probably, you know, by that time, 26, 27, but we had had 10, 12 years in prison already. So that, to give you a context, a lot of us came in as kids, 16 years old, 17, uh, some 19. Um, and we were pretty much groomed um, on books by political prisoners. Um, the Black Panthers played a great role in our development. Uh, some of us came out of the Nation of Islam. Um, Malcolm X autobiography, George Jackson, Soledad Brother, those were kind of like our Bibles or our religious texts. Um, but we were also really influenced by political prisoners in the Pennsylvania prison system who were former members of the Black Panthers and Black Liberation Army. And when we came through in the early 90s, they had already had 20-something years in prison. So we were young bucks. And, you know, they kind of groomed us. However, like most kids, it took years for that to sit in, what they was telling us. So HRC was basically, the seed was planted in a lot of our minds probably in 1992 or 93. But by 2001, 2002, we were ready to actually take serious what we were reading. Um, and we realized that, yo, look, this system got its foot on our throats and we need some breathing space. Uh, we weren't reformists. Like I said, our whole posture was revolutionary. Um, we were in the minority, um, but we felt as though we could punch above our weight. And we had families that were riding for us. Um, my late mother was a uh, uh, one of the founders of HRC, Miss Patricia, who's in the back row, she, she is like the, the matriarch of HRC. She's been there from the beginning, and she's held it down when, you know, it was pretty much just her, you know, because some people had dropped off. So HRC's posture is based on the human rights posture, and that is the rights that we have as human beings, as prisoners, are inherent. Um, we weren't going to beat our head against the wall with the civil rights thing. Uh, we understood that those rights are extended by governments. And as what you would call students of Malcolm X, we, we really listened to what he said about challenging oppression from a human rights standpoint. And that is, you're going to respect my humanity regardless to what circumstances I'm in. And so that formed the, the posture of HRC. And we felt as though our families on the outside could be our voices. 
And we are, it, was, it was also another process in that too. Our families felt as though, yo, that we're powerless out here. Who do we got to go to? We don't really have, you know, a lot of the organizations that were supporting prisoners were actually kind of tied hand and glove with the, the Department of Corrections. Or they kind of felt as though, hey, look, we can't piss off the Department of Corrections, so let's not talk about prison abuse. You know what I mean? Let's not talk about ending mass incarceration. Let's talk about, you know, well, why don't you help prisoners out? We, we kind of were done with that. You know, we were like, no, nah, look, this is adversarial. This, this relationship is adversarial. And, and our families by that time were on board like, look, I'm tired of begging this system to help my son. I'm going to help them myself or my daughter. Um, so our families got together. HRC was actually, its first meeting was in the living room. Um, it, it, it was a dinner. It was very, you know, from the beginning we realized that this is based on relationships. It's not just, it's not an organization, but it, it's almost like a family and it's based on kinship and relationships because that's how it was on the inside. All of us who formed HRC, we had 10 years history with each other. Getting kicked out of prisons, doing years in solitary confinement. So we already had like a deep personal connection. The next logical step for us was, yo, why don't your mom meet mine? Or, you know, why don't my father meet your mom? Or who, who's, who's riding for you? Because it's like we have these connections, but our families don't. And so that, that, that's basically how it started in, 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 in a living room. And I think it was in North Philadelphia. Um, from there, I, I think when, 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 when our people emerged from that living room, I know that when I spoke to my mother, I, I, see, I saw something different in her. It was like she found kindred spirits. Like, you know, when she was talking about how my son has been in the hole for three years, there was someone there that said, man, I'm dealing with that. You know, when there was someone that would say, yo, my son is serving life without parole uh, for either a crime he didn't commit or, or, he, or, or it was disproportionate to what he did, there was someone there that could relate to that and, and not judge and not judge them. So emerging from that meeting, I mean, the, the spirits were high, um, energy was set, and you know we started campaigns. The first campaign naturally was against long-term solitary confinement. HRC started that campaign in 2002. You know now ending long-term solitary confinement is on the lips of every policy reformist and every politician across the country. But in 2002, we were saying this when I would say maybe three to four percent of Pennsylvania's prison population was locked down 23 and one. So that's probably at least at that time it was maybe two to 3,000 prisoners who were locked down in indefinite solitary confinement. I'm not talking about solitary confinement for 30 days or 90 days. I'm talking about they were just in the hole until the prison said, hey, you know, what? we're going to release you. So you had guys five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we were talking about ending that back in 2002. Um, and, and to be honest with you, a lot of us didn't believe that we would be successful, but we felt as though, look, these people got our foot on our neck. Let's go out fighting. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to piss them off. You know, if I'm going down, then I'm taking your arm with me. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing some blood in this fight. You know what I mean? Um, it really feels like a sense of validation today that we see this issue on the mouth of, like I said, a lot of policy analysis. Abolishing life without parole, abolishing juvenile life without parole, ending prison abuse. All of these are issues that we were fighting back in 2002 from a human rights perspective, from a legislative perspective, 
from a lit, um, litigation perspective going into courts. So, you know, that kind of frames the context of HRC's history. Um, where HRC is at now, we're fortunate that we have chapter in Pittsburgh. Um, Sandra was going to talk about that. Terrell was going to talk about that. We have a, mo a, a, a newsletter that comes out quarterly, the movement. We have offices in Philadelphia. We have a website, Facebook page. Um, we have a human rights parade that's coming up in Philadelphia in September. And that is we invite in all organizations, whatever issue that you're fighting that's based on the human rights posture, that on a human rights position, to come to the parade, bring a float, you know, and, and, and represent. That's what we want. We want people to represent um, what they're fighting for as long as it's an issue dealing with human rights. But I think the main point to, to take away before I pass it off to, to uh, Terrell so he could talk about HRC supporting his fight for freedom is that this is a movement. This is a, I don't really like using the word organization, but I just use it just uh, uh, to, to help get the point across that this is made up of regular folks, regular people. You know, we don't have big foundations behind us. Um, you know, we, we don't have a whole bunch of different people helping us out. You know, we're all, we're volunteer based. Um, myself, I did 27 years. I came home, so I'm finally helping the organization that I started. Terrell did 17 years. He came home, he helped speak out. Um, There's a lot of other brothers coming home, but to this day, HRC is a volunteer based organization. Um, and it's, it's ordinary people, you know, doing, I feel, extraordinary things. My name is Celine Holbrook. I'm a prisoner activist. I served 27 years in prison. I was a juvenile sentenced to life without parole. Um, I was released in February 2018. I'm a founding member of the Human Rights Coalition. My, my late mother was also a founding member of the Human Rights Coalition. Our ultimate objective is to empower the families of prisoners so that they could take on the system, that they could get help for their imprisoned family members, and they could actually have a say in how the system treats their loved ones, and not only that, how the system operates in general. I'm not a reformist. Right. Um, and a lot of us who founded HRC, we were inspired by the Black Panthers, and not from just reading books. Um, we had the fortune to actually run into, when I say run into, we were placed in the hole and met uh, Russell Maroon Schultz, uh, former member of Philadelphia's Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army. We met uh, uh, Jojo Bowens, a member of the Black Liberation Army. There's a couple others in there. And they were actually in the hole already since the late 70s, when I came through in the early 90s. And so meeting them, they kind of, passed on to us their legacy uh, in, a, in a sense they they knew that you know not that their time was limited that but that the state got them and the state you know it's a war and the state's not going to let them out so by us coming in contact with them you know they were very eager to share with us because they seen that we were receptive to it um so that was our influence now malcolm x i mean look practically every prisoner that's conscious that came into some political awareness either came into it through two people, either Malcolm X or George Jackson. And for us, Malcolm X and George Jackson pretty much captured the mindset that we had when we founded HRC. We were young, we were at war with the system, the system was at war with us. It was the era of mass incarceration 
the mid to late 90s. So, I mean, you know, Pennsylvania was on a prison construction spree. The entire culture of the so-called Department of Corrections shifted from treatment to punishment. Um, so we felt a boot on our neck. And like I said, we weren't reformists, but we understood that, look, we need some breathing space, you know, and, and, and it's time for us to start pushing back. Traditionally, we were, our method of fighting the system was basically the physical method, fighting, trying to escape, um, fighting guards, and, you know, all them things has had and has its place. But we realized that, look, you got to take this beast on a lot more intelligent. So we started organizing our families. So, as I said earlier, the whole concept of human rights basically sprung from Malcolm X, particularly within the black experience. Um, I know human rights is pretty popular now, but Malcolm X was talking about asserting our human rights in the early 60s. So when we read that, what we got out of that was that the state may have me. They may have sentenced me to spend the rest of my life in prison. They may have sentenced my comrade to that, sent some of my comrades to death. But the rights that we have inherent, the right to respect, the right to self-determination, the right to freedom, they can't take that. That's not legislated. Civil rights are legislated. Human rights aren't. There's the, the, the state cannot grant that to us. So that really resonated with us because it was like, damn, yo, we're not asking these people for something. We're demanding it. So that, that, that fit our character at the time. Um, so when I say that we're students of Malcolm X, that's what I mean by the students of Malcolm X, his approach to when we talk about human rights, our perspective on human rights doesn't come from the United Nations. It doesn't come from an NGO as it's popular now. It comes from Malcolm X saying that the rights that you have inherent in you, self-determination, self-defense, the ability to find yourself in your environment, no government can give those to. No government can grant them or take them from you regardless to how low you are in the depths of hell and prison they can't take that from you but you got to fight for it so that really resonated with us and i would say that's the posture of hrc and our family members have that same posture too that's why when miss uh when 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 sandra was saying how when the secretary of the pennsylvania department of correction penned her a letter and said hey listen please stop writing me sending me emails and, and, and harassing me, she basically said, yo, when you stop oppressing my son and oppressing other prisoners, when you tell your guards to stop oppressing my son and to stop oppressing other prisoners, then I'll stop writing. You know, see, there was a time when somebody would have said, wow, damn, the secretary just wrote me, stop calling him, oh, I'm gonna do it. But see, because Sandra has that position that, yo, you're not, I'm not asking you to do this, I'm telling you to do this. And look, we're not under any type of illusion that they're gonna stop. But yeah, we're in a fight. You know what I mean? I'm not going to fight on your terms. I'm going to keep harassing you. I'm going to keep fighting you. You're going to keep kicking me down. You're going to keep throwing me down. But I'm going to keep scratching at your ankles. You know, this is a fight. So, you know, that kind of sums up HRC's uh, mission. And, and we're very serious about um, that mission because we're, all, we're the ones that's impacted by this. Like I said, it was founded by prisoners and, and our families. And it's, it's still run by prisoners and our families. We have an inside advisory council that are, that's composed of prisoners on the inside, and we have an outside council, and they, they make policy for HRC. You know, no one else comes into our organization and, you know, 
makes policy. We'll listen, but you know, we're always going to ask guys on the inside, hey, what do you think about this? And we're going to ask their families, and they're going to be the ones that decide. There was a time in Pennsylvania prisons where prisoners were organized, prisoners were hitting the walls, prisoners were actually a force, a political force. And those brothers there that I named were actually leaders in it, but they were doing that on the streets. You know, they were in prison for a political activity. They were in prison for being members of the Black Liberation Army. So they just took that fight into the prison system. By the time I came through in 1991, they had a, many of them had already been in the hole for 20 years. So when, when I seen them in the hole, I was very fortunate to be come in contact with them and I would say be tutored by them, mentored by them. But what I realized when I got out the hole and as I got older is that then that the state wants them to just be forgotten about so that these younger guys, when they come into prison and they see how messed up prison is today, when they see how guards completely have the run of the joint, they'll never know that there was a time when it was actually kind of opposite. It, no, prison back in the day, we didn't run them camps, but it was give and take. It was a fight. You know what I mean? The guards, they really had to fight to hold them camps. Now they don't have to do that. Russell Maroon Schultz did 22 continuous years in the hole, but altogether it was around 30 years in the hole from, from 1983 to 2014. He was in the hole. He had one brief stint of 18 months in general population when he was sent into the federal system. But when he came back into the state system, he was placed back in the hole. Uh, Jojo Bowens was in the hole from 1981 to 2017. So, yeah, so, you know, the state definitely was isolating them. Um, their present status now, you know, they're, they're in their late 60s and, and 70s. Um, there's a couple other, um, Arthur Chetaway Johnson, he's another one. Muhammad um, Burton, he's another one. Um, there, there's a lot of them in there. But like I said, they're seniors now. Um, so their status is, is not good. You know, um, there's no other way to say that. The Law Project is named after the famous Amnestad incident where captured Africans who were going to be sold into slavery mutinied on the ship, took the ship over, killed their enslavers, and attempted to sail the ship back to Africa. That's, that's the inspiration for the Amnestad yeah, Law Project. We're fighting modern-day slavery. So we're going to continue the legacy of Amnestad. We're going to continue the legacy of the abolitionists because that's what we're fighting. The modern prisons is, is modern slavery. So, you know, we're very proud to take up those names upon ourselves, our law firm, because we know we're living up to them. Um, so the work we do with them is we, we work on everything from um, death by incarceration sentences, which, which we call life, which people call life without parole. We call them death by incarceration. Um, we work on those cases. We work on prison, general prison litigation cases about people being, guys in the hole being abused, uh, placed in isolation. We work on act, lack of access to health care. Hepatitis C cases are very prevalent in Pennsylvania and the prisons aren't getting treatment for that. Um, so those are some cases we're working on. Um, so it's basically cases in general that are challenging mass incarceration while also trying to get people out of prison. So those are some, I mean, the specifics, I, I really can't go too deep into the specifics of some cases, but 
that's our case y'all docket um and you know like i said we're we're abolitionist lawyers we're we're um we're, we're, we're attorneys at war that's that's how we view ourselves going against the system we're not we're not in there to uh you know small chat you know with, with the prosecutor or something like that we're coming in there to fight to bring our loved ones home fight to change the system and fight to stop abuses within the prison but I think the main thing that I would like to say to prisoners and their families is to get organized. You know, Indiana, you know, wherever this is being heard at, you know, organize yourselves. You know, um, look to us as a model or example if you were. But, you know, we got to fight this beast wherever we're at. And, you know, the best way to do that is to get organized. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.